You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Say in Italian, it always happens to me. Molto bene, is that is that muy how you say bien. it? <laughs> muy, muy bien in Italian. Very, that's very. Oh, in Italian, be uh, molto bene. Right, exactly, because you are Italian, Marconi. Although they call you Marcone because of the e at the end. It's great to have you. Well, thank you, and you too. How is the semester going? The semester is going quite well at William Patterson the University. We are already. By the time people hear this, we'll be five weeks in, and it's only the third week of September. So that'll be. Good. Wow. And it's a third of the semester done. We have a guest today for the show. Matt Wilson is his name, author of Hooks, Lessons on Performance, Business, and Life from a Working Musician. Actually, a really good book that you should buy. He will join us in a moment. But should we give thanks right now? I guess, yes. Okay. So I guess we'll give thanks. And we're going to give thanks to the folks at Bandai and Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Trez Doors Down, St. Vincent Kiss, Zach Brown. And Tima likes music. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. Uh, hyphen CPA.com when you're ready. And our thanks go out to Christine. Oi. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group, F O U R. Christine has helped many professionals all around the world manage their investments, plan out for their retirement when you're thinking of building a bridge to your financial future. Think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine at Forefront.com. Leave the last nothing off for savings. <laughs> you can leave the last oi off if you want, but that would only be your choice. Your, your body, your choice, your oi. That's what I say about that. And we should let people know, edition, Managing Your Band is out. Seventh. That's what I said. Seventh edition. Yes, seventh. Seventh edition. Yes, you right. Emboldening and underlining and ampersanding the seventh edition is out. And a very special Music Biz 101 and more will follow this episode 
the uh, the esteemed Steve Corbin, who works for WIA, the Warner Electric Atlantic Vice President. Vice, he's, he's, he's with the Vice Squad, and he is going to interview us about right. the seventh edition of Managing Your Band. With that in mind, here we are with Matt Wilson. Marconi, take it away. All right, Matt. Yes. Well, I see that the book is more of a, uh, well, what I took is a self-help, self confidence building, uh, know to yourself, uh, don't do things before you're ready to do them, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And I know the uh, bookshelves are filled with the books like that. What uh, precipitated you to write your own? Well, okay, excellent question. Uh, one, it's my story. Mm -hmm. right? These are my experiences. These are things that work for me and they work for me in a very specific uh, venue, a very specific, uh, uh, in a meaningful way in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I, I believe along the way, uh, sometimes, well, we all know this, one way to first step to solving a problem, they say, is to, is to realize you have a problem, right? That old saying. Mm -hmm. But I, I take it a different way. Uh, uh, the only way you can ever solve a problem is to identify what the problem is. Mm -hmm. right? And so uh, by me facing my challenges along the way from a professional standpoint and a personal standpoint, I not only learned uh, how, uh, how to develop tools to, to work through that and to strengthen and to give myself mm -hmm. confidence, things like that, but I also learned to identify it. And so um, because of that, I'm, I'm no psychologist and I'm no therapist or anything, but, but just by me learning about myself, I notice I begin to see in other people and people I work with and, and people I would manage in, from my own business and, and people that I have personal relationships with. I would see that, you know what, if I'm not gonna tell you how to do things, but do you mind if I give you some advice because I might be able to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, Yes, I agree that uh, a lot of what I talk about has been said by others, but uh, as, as a guy that I was working with who, who uh, consulted me on the book, he was saying, well, what he said was that uh, someone may hear this same story or these, these same tools or something similar along the way, but your story might be the one that helps them. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm uh, in the book, I talk about inspiration as a writer, I'm a songwriter, and I talk about that you don't judge uh, whatever inspiration is coming through. If you're a creator, you create, and then you determine, mm -hmm. you may determine the validity of it later, but in the moment, you just do it. And I've, the, 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 the inspiration I had to write this book and do this has been as strong, if not stronger than anything I've ever created in my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, when I, on that same that subject, uh, what struck me too is is something that we should all figure it, of course, but we all do the wrong thing too, and that is measure our success or failure by someone else's success or failure. Right, and that and that makes you lose your confidence, so or never gain your confidence. Yeah. actually, that you probably deserve. Yes, and and the other thing also is your you know your bad is not as bad as you think it and yeah. also your good is not as good as you think right. it sometimes as well right and i think that's true for you know any artist that's yeah. out there struggling of course um but for you to take i mean to be the piano man and so on to do this 
and I take it was piano that was your main instrument yes. to do this and not have musical training. It always amazes me that people do that. I mean, I could see them doing it on a guitar or on a or singing, obviously, or on a one note, like I'm a trumpet player on the one note, but to do it on piano where uh, harmony is so important in terms of just getting the right mood and the right sound and so on. Uh, it's amazing. I, I would never try it. It amazed me to try it for someone to try to do that. And that's what you did actually. Yeah. So some, some may say that the piano could be uh, easier to learn in a sense, because you can see it little yeah. blocks in front of your face and you push them. Right. You know, I tried to learn to play guitar a little bit. I played just a little bit, but just getting the finger to be in the right place. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I started taking piano lessons when I was three years old from mm -hmm. my, uh, from my family and, uh, uh or my aunt, uh, my dad plays piano. Everybody in my family kind of plays piano, but his sister, my aunt Mary, we would go over there to her house to learn, uh, piano lessons twice a week, once a week, whatever it may be. Um, uh, so it was always there, but I, I, I never gave it the detail that it, that it needed. No. I didn't really learn how to read music. I mean, I could sit and poke it out if I had to, you know, yeah. but, uh, uh, but I've, the, the, the ability to, to hear music in a creative form, I, I've, I've always had that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then of course I, I loved music. I would listen to, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and little Richard and, and mm -hmm. Eagles and Billy Joel and Elton John, all that growing up and just, just let that pour into my brain and, uh, you know, marinate and that stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when the, when the opportunity came along where I really needed to have a lot of uh, detail in my playing, which was for moving out, I really had to do a lot of heavy lifting. I practiced and had to learn and hire coaches and teachers to teach me how to, uh, how to do that. Right now, were you reading, reading music at that point? I mean, piano music? No. 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 <laughs> it's all I had to, uh, we, I had to memorize it pretty much. We, and, yeah. and when I said, so we, we played two, uh, uh, there were two chairs and moving out. There was the, the piano man chair, which is the, you were playing and singing, you were the Billy Joel guy. Uh, but then when I wasn't doing that, or when the other guy was doing that, we were, since we were on tour, they didn't travel another keyboard player. So we would go over to the keyboard chair. And that was even more intricate yeah. because you're playing, you know, a, a trombone in your left hand and in the middle of the keyboard is a trumpet or whatever. And then yeah. over here was a B3 and you're switching around, you're pushing buttons and you're playing specific parts that you would never really even know were there you know, yeah. string, string arrangements that, that even if you listen to the song your whole life, you weren't really paying attention to. So yeah, just where I was, uh, I had the ability to play it. I just, I wasn't going to be able to sit there and read it. So I learned it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, I, the other thing I wonder, of course, is um, people like you that are self-taught and jazz musicians, of course, rely so much on their ears and they're blessed. We have a, a great jazz department in our here in the uh, college and it just amazed the, the the amount of um just they come in with such talent and then you can push that talent even further and i always wonder now that classical like my sister for instance played classical piano and if it wasn't written on a note you know it wasn't written on the page they're done i mean couldn't yeah. couldn't do anything and right. i i i always uh, 
I give credit to those uh, church organists who might be playing, you know, and finish the hymn and the minister still isn't ready yet. You know, and they're looking at him through their mirror and then they're noodling. But what they're doing is they're improvising. Right. You know, they're keeping it going. And I go, boy, that's, I don't know if that took guts for them to do that or what, but that's not any part of the wheelhouse when you're taking classical piano and so on. I'm, I'm kind of uh, amused because I, I was thinking the same thing about the, the players that, that unless they have the sheet music in front of them, it's almost as if they don't know how to play. Yeah. Right? They have to have the sheet music in front of them. And then I started, and, and we all know those, those players and they're extremely talented, but that's just how they play. I started thinking about myself because I, because I don't read notation, but I can read chord charts, right? I can, mm -hmm. I can read a, a, a right. chart. Right. Right. So I'm thinking about when my band, when we're playing with my band, and even when the chart is in front of me, I'm, I'm drawn to taking my eyes off of it and just, <laughs> just ah. trying to feel it out, even yeah. when it's right in front of me. Yeah. I, don't, I, I haven't uh, uh, trained myself to keep my eyes on the, right. on the page. Well, you're almost like uh, the old saying, you know, teach a Nashville guitar player how to read and, and ruin his career. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I really, I mean, honestly, I, I, I do wish that I could read, but mm -hmm. I, I often think if I would have started that path, if it would have been a different thing from a writing standpoint, mm -hmm. you know, and even from an, the way that we interpret, I mean, look, you know, I, I play, I still play all the time. I play with my band. I play piano bar shows. I play all kinds of stuff. And uh, even though we're all playing the same songs, we're in, there's an interpretation of them, right? So when I play the Rolling Stones, it's as close as I want to get to it. It's me interpreting the Rolling Stones. And I just I just wonder how, if, if I would have been uh, strapped to the page, if you will, yeah. if, uh, if my interpretation, my rhythm, my approach to all these songs would have been different. And I'll never know because yeah. We're not starting over. Yeah. Well, they say Paul Schaefer, you know, from, uh, I, I only met him once, but they said Paul Schaefer can remember any tune that he only heard once. It could be 50 years ago. It yeah. could be 60 years ago. And I'm wondering if you have that sort of blessing as well. No, but I, I uh, so I'm playing an event this tomorrow. And, and we're having to play two songs that I've never heard. You know, I bet you've heard them, but I've never heard them. <laughs> and and uh, I started thinking about it because I, I can learn songs pretty quickly. Like I, I can remember melodies mm -hmm. and, and I can, as a songwriter, I guess, I think of songs in blocks. Like here's the intro and then here's mm -hmm. the verse and here's the... And, and so I, I think, okay, that block goes there and then you have this much space between the next block and then... What's the hook they're going for in that block? I think of it that way, and so um, uh, I, I'm, I don't I don't have the ear where if I hear something once I play it. I know guys that do, but if if I have to, if you say go learn this song, I can learn it pretty quickly. Like rem remember it pretty quickly to to pull it off. And and sometimes you know in these piano bar shows people are asked for tunes. That's the gig. Hey, yeah, pick sure. a song, you call it, we play it, kind of thing. Uh, sometimes if the night's slow and I have the room on stage, if someone asks for something, I'll say, well, pull it up on Spotify and let me listen to it for a second. Mm -hmm. Listen to it, get the words in front of me, and then I, I go at it. Uh -huh. and I, I want to bring up something about uh, playing, learning a song in blocks. 
Because yeah. that is something, I'm a drummer and I've played in many cover bands. And we, I was with a band and we were practicing Magic Man by heart, which has a very long guitar solo in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. And if it, it's, it's funny, when you're in cover bands, if you've heard a song your whole life, you think you know it. And then when you sit down to play it, all of a sudden, and you talk about muscle memory in the book, you can, mm-hmm. you can start tripping up on either your yeah. confidence or your ear or just, oh my God, I've never heard that before because I've only heard it in a stereo. I've never heard it, oh my, you know. Yeah. So I was getting lost within this guitar solo that I'd heard a thousand times in my life. So the bass player says to me, well, it goes actually, in, and he actually kind of made some uh, charts for himself. Um, he says it goes in blocks. You have this much and then this and then this. And he was, and all of a sudden, boom, Yeah. completely understood it because I was strictly doing it by ear a drummer's ear and just listening to the guitar, listening and learning it like that. And then once, but there's no room for screwing up, you know, but once you give me the block thing, then I could rely on that as well as listening. And so that's a really interesting thing that you said that. Your, uh, the, the bookshelf in the back is, is drawing an imagery for me. Imagine it's like playing the game of clue. Imagine if they didn't name the rooms and you said, say, well, I, I think uh, the professor did it over there well where (laughs) over there right but because you have each room named that's how a song is we got the intro what was the intro doing Uh well it's doing that all right well then i got that so every time the intro comes along that's the block yeah Uh, and and it's interesting that uh what i always say and i think i'm correcting this is that song form used to be you know a a b a or or whatever all of that hip-hop through that right out the window. I mean, when I, I think one of the first years ago, I listened to uh, Master P mm-hmm. and I couldn't figure out where the chorus, where the, and then they stopped and they were done. And, and hardly ever end on a one chord anymore. They just yeah. don't. Yeah. One. I mean, it, and I'm not saying it's bad, but they took the standard Nashville song form or so American songbook, song form, threw it out the window. It didn't matter anymore. Well, one could also say, and I'm not saying necessarily just for hip hop or rap or, or any genre, but sometimes it could just be maybe the, the hook isn't strong enough. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Not, not for me to judge. I'm just saying if you're listening, no, you sure. can, you can no, walk I, away and figure out what happened, maybe no. it's the wrong song. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, sur- surrounded by good songwriters, too. So it's not a question of, well, they don't know anything. Yeah. Well, they know, you know, what a verse is. And they know what a chorus is and so on. But it seems to the order and the, the present, presentation of it is just totally opposite of what a Nashville guy would, would sit down and do. You know, I... I uh... I don't even know enough of the songs to really comment, but it, from what I heard, I got in a, a friendly argument with one of my dear friends who was the drummer and moving out. And I was telling him that from a pops, pop song standpoint, just a good like Beatle mm-hmm. package, there it is, pop song. I was like, Frank Zappa doesn't write good pop songs. Mm-hmm. they're all over the place you can't tell it. and he's like no they're great you know and so i think it may be a matter of interpretation to me i want i want it packaged i want a verse right. a chorus i want a pre-chorus i want a you know that kind of thing and right. then others 
I think David Bowie does this too. They just, it's kind of more of a free form, you know, not all the time, but, you know, and, uh, but ultimately the, the listener is the judge, right? Right. Right. Um, what did he write for Ike and Tina Turner? Um, Phil Spector, uh, what was the name of that long tune? River Deep Mountain High? Yeah, that tune. Yeah. Now that tune never got to be number one and he was always so pissed off about it. Well, if you look, listen to that song, it diverts twice. It has the first part, then it has that second part and then that thing with the drum that starts out. Right. And, and it, for a three minute single, there's no singles up to that point that divert, that digress three times. And that's, that's what I claim is the reason why it wasn't really structured as a great single, not a great tune. Well, and looking back, that, that, I mean, that chorus is something. What is it? Do I love you? Yeah. Do I love you? Yeah. Climbing in the neck, take a little step. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it that's, went too many times for that. I think for the normal person to get to get off on that compared to um, everything else that they listen to. Right. But that's me anyway. Yeah. So what was your first big gig? Disney World. Uh-huh. Right out of high school, right out of college. Right out of college. Yeah. 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 I auditioned. I was at University of Texas, uh, a piano bar called Jelly Rolls. Uh-huh. Came in and, and set up in town. And they were they, I read in the newspaper they were having auditions. And so I went to audition and they said, okay, let's let's sign you up. We want to get put you under a contract. And I was, I don't know, 20, 20, 20 years old, 21, whatever I was, 20 maybe. I'm like, I'm not signing a contract. Come on now. I'm, no, not, I'm too young to sign a contract for what, right? And so I, I turned them down. And then two months later, they called and said, well, look, we're opening up a, a, a Jelly Rolls on Disney's Boardwalk in Orlando. Uh, do you want to play there? And they said, contract again. As I talked to my dad, my dad was, he wasn't saying not honor it. He's just saying, look, go, you're being offered a job. Go. If, if you don't like it, then mm -hmm. we'll work it out. Yeah. Don't be scared of the contract. And so, yeah, did that. And so I moved right out of college. I moved to Orlando and I mean, you can't beat the job I had right out of college. Mm -hmm. Playing piano yeah. five, six nights a week at Disney world. Right. right, right. Every night. Yeah. What made you leave? Uh, just uh, the desire to keep going, you uh -huh. know, um, uh, it was, it's so funny, man, you guys, you guys work musicians, right? You've done it. So imagine this. Here's, here's Jelly Rolls on Disney's Boardwalk. I mean, this just amazing, you know, 600 right. people a night were playing. Next door to that is a brewery called Big River, I think, right? And it's a restaurant brewery. And my girlfriend uh, slash fiance, who became fiance, didn't work out. Anyway, my girlfriend worked there. So I left Jelly Rolls because I was making a record and I just, I felt like, you know, I've been doing this. I want to go out and explore, but along the, I mean, you know, explore new heights in my career, I thought was around the corner. And just when you work at, at Jelly Rolls, that's where, where you work five, six nights a week and you can't really do a whole lot else. Right. So, so I left there and then in, in the in-between time between what I was going to do, I was just picking up gigs. Well, they gave me a gig at Big River, right? Mm -hmm. But here's how it would go. 
I would roll my keyboard in <laughs> during dinner, right next to people eating dinner. And I would move a table over, <laughs> I would set up my keyboard just right in the middle of the dining room. I mean, you know, it's like we're dining room. All of a sudden, this guy's bringing in his keyboard. We're moving tables out of the way. Now you're having dinner. And then five yeah. minutes later, you got this dude with a keyboard right next to you and a speaker and a microphone. And what do you want to hear? You know, I mean, it was just, you know, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's how I got by for a little bit, playing a few gigs like that. I would drive to atlanta from orlando mm. play on a patio and then drive back i mean i was young i was like whatever right. I mean, however long is it was it six hours one way or five whatever it is there and i'd play my patio gig and i'd turn around and i'd drive home yeah. and uh and then i uh, was almost ready to move to atlanta and uh then i got a, a call from a, a club that i'd worked with a little bit in in uh college on sixth street in austin and I knew that they had an opening. And so I said, mm -hmm. I'm moving back to Austin. Ah, so that was it. That, that started the next, the next round. Yeah. Yeah. So Dave, do you want us? Yeah. So um, I want to get into the book a little bit and read yeah. our listeners. So what we're talking about is the book is called Hooks, Lessons on Performance, Business, and Life from a Working Musician. And the way the book is structured is basically one through, what is the number of the final hook? 80. 80? Okay. 80. Okay, 80. So it's got, we'll call it 80 hooks to the book. And each hook is, is, a, is a little lesson. And I say a little, you know, it's like anywhere from two to four pages. Uh, and each hook basically is a, a hook. Well, how about you? Describe what you mean when you're talking about hooks within this book. Well, so as, as we've talked about a little bit, I'm going to reference this, you know, the hook is uh, from musical st musical standpoint is the part of the song that you remember when you walk away, right? Um, uh, I'm going to put you guys on the spot. If I say, if I say the song uh, Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond, what do you guys think about? Bah, bah, yeah, that's the home that's the home hook or sweet caroline whatever right that's the hook it's hook song so uh in the book i, I write uh, uh some compare life to a song and if this is true then these hooks are the things that i've picked up and remember mm -hmm. the way mm -hmm. right. okay which makes sense so you have 80 of these hooks and a number of them actually you can tie quite a few of them into the whole concept of, of mental health. Yes. Hook number 34. You write, performers will always assume it's about them. It's yeah. not. Yeah. Can you explain that? And there's some others that I want to, other hooks that I want to get into, but that one in particular, I thought was pretty interesting. Number 34. Well, um, and I'm pulling it up now because I want to be thorough about, about the answers. You know, um, uh, as I say here, any sort of artistry that, that's presented is a very personal thing, right? I can't think of, I mean, I could, I'm not saying I'm right, but I can't think of anything more personal from an a, a artist standpoint than singing. Think about it. You're, you're, mm -hmm. you're presenting this instrument, but the instrument is your body. And everybody has some sort of ear for when things seem weird. And singing probably gets the most crunched face when it's wrong <laughs> hey stop you know that kind of thing right it's a very personal thing and we know that 
and and uh, and that's why people are sensitive. If you're standing around a birthday party and everybody's singing happy birthday, those that feel like they have a great voice, they'll sing a harmony, right? They'll go after it. But the others may be shy in the background. It's it's a very personal thing. Well, any kind of art that way, anything that's presenting uh, uh, that you're presenting is a is a personal thing. And so, uh, uh, you know, even in all these podcasts that you guys are doing, I'm sure that after maybe maybe not so much anymore, but in the beginning when it was over, you think, hey, did I ask the right questions? Did I have that conversation go? We always come back to the way that, that we presented whatever we were presenting. And so you, when you add artistry onto that, singing, dancing, acting, performing in any way, it becomes very, very personal. Mm -hmm. And so if you're playing a gig and the crowd's not listening, you're, al you're already sensitive. You're already sensitive. Did, that, did I write this song correctly? Did it, is this a good tune? Am I, am I representing this song right? Am I playing in tune? Am I singing in tune? Am I calling the right tunes? Do I look okay? You know, all of that, you're already thinking that. And then if the crowd doesn't respond or the, the, the management or the team or whatever, they don't respond, your very first thought is going to be, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. And I say, in, I say in the book, it may not be that. It may be that, that uh, you know, the crowd's there to eat dinner. They're not there to pay attention to you. You're, you're, you're just part of the ambiance. Or, or maybe the guy in the front row never dances ever, ever, ever. And so you're judging your performance based on whether or not he danced. That's the wrong way to go. Uh, and, and ultimately what I say is that you need to learn to evaluate yourself. You need to learn to be able to uh, have your tricks in your bag of moving a crowd or delivering the show the best you can. But you can't necessarily rely on did the show, did the response to the show or response of what you're doing go exactly the way you plan? Because you may give a great performance. You may give a great sales pitch. You may give, uh, uh, you may be singing perfectly in tune or, you know, it just, the, the response just may not be on point. So it's not always about you. And that's where then I talk about how to, how to do self uh, criticism, how to judge your instrument, how to raise your bass level, how to do these things. So you're a little bit more in control rather than, uh, uh, leaving everything in the hands of the audience. Let me interject one thing too. You also say, which I was interested in, if you hire a producer, let him produce or let oh, yeah. him produce. Yeah. And that goes back, I think, to that same ego thing as well as we're talking about now. Uh, because you do, you take over instead of letting that objective outside voice come in and produce you. And that's well, basically why you hire one. You need it. I, I recently was uh, working on a little project. I was asked to make a little video. I didn't have a producer on it. And I, I, I was just all by myself. Oh, man. I mean, just the back and the forth and the checking and all that. And, and, and I actually came up with a new, with a new hook. I'll reveal it right here. Uh, pay attention to project fatigue, right? And fight, yeah. fight through it because... I wanted this to be the best that I could. And I would continue to go back with questions to my team. And they're like, whatever, dude, it doesn't matter. I was like, I asked somebody, I said, Hey, you think this note is a little sharp? And they're like, yeah, fine. Whatever. You know, they were all getting the project fatigue. I wanted it right. And I thought to myself, this is why I need a producer. I need someone as vested in this project as I am 
but isn't the artist, isn't the one thinking that 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 one sour note is going to end my career forever, even though I'm, you know, exaggerating here, but you know what I'm saying. What's interesting, uh, the project fatigue, I, you, when I was in radio, I had a good discussion once with the drive time, um, afternoon drive time DJ, who said, you know, in radio, DJs, especially on the kind of radio station where, where they have a little bit free, of freedom to, to play some things that they want to play, DJs have to be very, or on-air personalities, actually, they had to be called. It was wrong to call them DJs. It was insulting. So the on-air personalities had to be careful that they would not get, we'll call it song fatigue, because every time they played a song, they heard it. Yeah. And they would get sick of the song before the audience would, because the audience uh, was listening to it, not necessarily on demand the way the on-air personality was listening to it. So they they would have to realize I'm sick of it, but the audience is not. So I'm not going to project my personal opinions of the song anymore uh, because the audience they, they need to still develop theirs because they haven't heard it as often as I have. And that kind of goes sort of with what you're talking about. You know, you know what that is? That's uh, that's Mustang Sally. Mm -hmm. I got guys play band. I'll play in the band, but don't even call Mustang Sally. I'm not playing that. And I'm like, well, what? People love Mustang Sally. I mean, yeah. just because you've played it a thousand times doesn't mean that they don't want to hear it. And they're going to love it. And then they're going to love you. Play Mustang yeah. Sally. <laughs> I said, well, you saw that and I'm sure moving on, as when you play Broadway in the pit, you have to, it's almost like you're psyching yourself up to make this the first performance you played it, even if it's the 300th performance, because the audience out there, it's the first performance. Right. So that's what with Broadway players, it's a, it's a real psych thing 10 minutes before, like going out on a football field. When you're in the pit, you have to get, you have to get yourself up. Right. And, and you know what? I've, I haven't thought about this to just now. That's, that's another angle about the artist always thinks it's about them. Exactly. It's not. It's not about how you feel about this song. All right. It, 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 this is a different angle on it. I may be tired of this song. I may not want to play it, but this isn't about me. Yeah. It's not about me. It's about the audience. Right. It's about delivering a good, a, a, some entertainment for, those, for the listener. Yeah. And that even that even works. I know we're, we're talking sort of like whether it's Broadway or, or, the, or the club, but if you're yeah, I heard you mentioned Don Henley at one point in the book when going from solo to being in a band. But I think it was either Don Henley or Glenn Fry. It might have been Glenn Fry before he passed away, said, I don't want to play Take It Easy ever again. I'm sick of that song. I've played it and heard it thousands of times, but I play it every night because the audience wants to hear it. And we're up there because of the audience. We are not up there because of us, you know? And Absolutely. the musician, yeah, internalizes it to the point where it's, I don't know if it becomes ego or what, but they, yeah, exactly what you're saying. And, and, and good for him for realizing that, you know, because uh, uh, when, when he wrote, what was it, Take It Easy, is that what you said? Yeah, take it easy. I, I, promise, I mean, I guarantee you, when he first wrote it, he wanted everybody to hear it, and he wanted to sing it every night. You know, mm -hmm. so, so just because he got sick of it, at least he realized that uh, the importance of it. Because I'm sure there are some, I'm not going to say the artist, whatever, but I, I've seen some artists go up and just completely hack through their hit and not even give it any serious attention just because they got so sick of it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. This is why we're all here, right? So, yeah. That's the uh, Bill Graham story. 
where he took Hendrix in the back room and he put him in the back room and he says, you ever play that in my club again? You play it like it's your last game yeah. you're ever going to play. Yeah, right. it's not and about you. That's the way Bill Graham was. I, I played the West and the East. <laughs> so we were, we were saying earlier, uh, before we were on, uh, we've ha we've had a lot of shows where people drop f bombs and Matt. So you, uh, I, I joked and I sang, you know, you're son of a preacher man. So mm -hmm. your your father uh, is a minister, a pastor, and and one thing I think you you brought up in one of your hooks is that uh, your your father. I think this is was the story. Your father was with some other pastors in a group, and a guy started their meeting with a joke, and it was sort of a biblical type present day joke yeah um and it kind of threw the meeting off it threw the group off because the joke wasn't accepted very well mm. and you go on saying uh, the lesson is don't rush in there to, we'll call it a business meeting you know it could be whether we're uh, haggling over a contract trying to get myself a gig or it's you know we're in the business world and i'm there for a job interview or something like that and you say, don't go in and try and be basically the comedian. Um, be calm was definitely one of the words. Be, be calm and collected and just read the room, which is another one of your lessons, you know. So kind of get into that a little bit and why you brought yeah. that up. Yeah, the hook specific is humor is often a distraction during a business conversation. Yeah. Be cordial, calm and not funny. Right. And and. Uh, uh, man, I've been on the other end of that so many times where I'm, I'm, it's not that I'm in a hurry. It's just, we all got stuff to do. I mean, we got, you know, we got to do our thing mm -hmm. and we're, we're almost to the point of finding the solution or we're almost to that point of really get into it. And then somebody makes some comment and then what happens? We all have to respond. We have to, we have to laugh. We have to feign interest. I had this conversation yesterday. It was a thing. I was talking to a guy and he told me a joke and, and I didn't laugh. And he's like, what? And I said, well, listen, I mean, I, I was kind of like Larry David, right? <laughs> Here's the thing. If you tell me something funny and it's funny, I'm going to laugh, but don't make me have to laugh. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to play that game. So I can see how that's humorous or clever, but it's not funny to me. So I'm not going to laugh. Right. So uh, I wrote here uh, about my good friend, Joe, once told me he hated jokes. I asked him why he said it's because they are rarely funny, often offensive and require in most cases that you pretend to laugh. Yeah. And uh, Joe was annoyed by that social, by that small social burden. And that that's true. I'm not saying don't be friendly and be lighthearted, but, uh, but you don't have to try to, it's not comedy hour. Right. Um, let's let's just kind of stay. You can stay on path. And I think people may respect that more. And of course, as you get to know people and you build a relationship, maybe there's room for some humor if you find that that uh, that that's how the, the relationship goes. But uh, th this was in one of the business hooks. So it's just one of these things that just kind of it's another hook that's like, hey, think about this. Think mm -hmm. about this angle. Right. And then, and then humor on stage, I talk about, you know, as you mentioned having the dump button over potty mouth over here. Um, I was saying that, uh, you know, uh, I'm a big proponent of this. People don't agree. I, I want to pull up the hook, but I don't want to slow us down. Uh, let me see if I can do it real quick. But uh, uh, let me see if I can get it real fast. Uh, yeah, here we go. So this hook here, uh, edgy performance banter that entertains 10 
and offends one is probably not worth it. There's always a better way. Mm-hmm. I've, I've always, um, I had one experience on stage when I was young where I did something that would be considered vulgar. And I felt so terrible after, and I knew that it wasn't needed. And even my point is, is that I believe, because I know this is how I've run my career, I believe that you can be edgy, you can be uh, funny, you can be in control, but you don't have to be dirty and you don't have to be vulgar. And I'm of the opinion, I know many else would disagree, that's fine, but I'm of the opinion that the vulgar humor is the low-hanging fruit. It's, it's easy to be vulgar and try to get a reaction out of the crowd. It's harder, but it's more rewarding to be entertaining creatively uh, in the spot, in the moment, impromptu. And yeah, you can be a little edgy, but not vulgar, right? Yeah. And so that's how, yeah. It's funny because uh, I hate to bring him up, especially now, but Bill Cosby, there Mm -hmm. was when Bill Cosby was, you know, looked at differently than he is today for most of his career, actually. And um, around uh, the 80s, there was a show that he had top rated show on NBC called The Cosby Show. And that show was in reaction generally to Eddie Murphy and the comedy of of, uh, people like Eddie Murphy and uh, people who were using vulgarities and their humor was very, you know, laden with F-bombs and sexuality and things like that. And his whole thing was, you don't have to do that. You can still be funny by looking And Seinfeld ended up doing very well with this, looking at life. And you mentioned Larry David, looking at life. And there's a lot of humor in there and it doesn't have to include the sexuality or the the vulgarities and things like that. So he made a whole, you know, he was the king of the eighties on NBC um, because of his, his show like that. And I think that's interesting. So let me ask you though, because I think one of the hardest things for artists is that banter on stage. Mm-hmm. You'll watch, especially, uh, I'm thinking more in the indie band realm where they're up there and they have a 25 minute set and mm-hmm. they need to say something because they finish a song and maybe somebody's tuning their guitar, but there's that 30 seconds, maybe minute between the song Something has to be said because you just can't leave, let the energy just drop as you just see the drummer just, pull, you know, um, slouching, waiting for the guitarist to t- whatever it is, you know. Right. So the banter. What would you suggest to artists to up their up their game when it comes to onstage banter? Well, I'm so glad that I have my book on iPad because I can just search. I actually have bullet points on this. You guys ready? Do we have a sound effect for bullet points? I mean, this is... Oh! So, uh, hook number 11, uh, stage banter. It really doesn't matter what you say as long as it's said clearly with conviction and confidence. I'm not going to say, uh, I don't perceive talking to an audience to be any different than speaking to someone directly, right? So here are the bullet points. Uh, uh, I, I, this is what I think about. I want to be informative. What song am I singing? Or what's the point of the show, right? Hey, folks, glad you're here tonight. I wrote this song, you know, tell them what I'm doing. Or, hey, this is all request show. If you haven't been here, write down your favorite song, bring it up. So I want to be informative. Uh, I want to be enthusiastic and positive. You do have to kind of raise the level. I mean, we got to remember uh, the first folks on stage many years ago, they didn't have microphones. They had to project, right? So we're projecting our personality a bit. You don't have to go over the top, but you have to raise a little bit, right? Um, I want to be receptive. I want to to read the room. We talked about that. I want to feel where the room is. If the room is kind of down, 
then I want to kind of meet them on them le on their level, a little bit higher up because I'm guiding them, I'm leading them, but I want to build them up to where I want to take them. I don't want to come out swinging real hard if they're down low. The tough one is when you come in and they're really ready to go, then you got to meet them on their level. So you, you want to be receptive to how they're responding. And then I want to be charming or humorous when appropriate. It's not always appropriate. They're not always going to buy into your jokes. Sometimes uh, uh, you just have to get to the next song, yeah. right? Sometimes, you know, if you're playing, if you're playing music, that's your deal. Sometimes you don't need to give the guitar player enough time in between to tune his guitar because you're going to lose the crowd. Well, what do you do? He has a good guitar. Well, have the drummer do a little solo or the bass player do something. Or, you know, you can have your, an informative canned thing. Folks, we got CDs at the back of the room. We got some new t-shirts. Please sign up to the email list. Aren't we glad we're here tonight at blah, blah, blah. Thank you for having us. Make sure you take care of the wait staff or thank you for buying the tickets. Here's our website. Now you're into the next thing. You do your little commercial, right? If you, if you can get into a flow, which is, I love this more than anything, where I get in this flow where it's a back and forth, the audience, and I can feel and I can surf and I, they're just listening to every word I say. That's a beautiful, special moment. But I don't force those moments. If they're not listening to me and buying into my humor and my thoughts that night, then I, I play, stick to playing music and commercials on stage, but I'm very positive and I'm very open and I'm looking for that connection, right? I'm looking for that connection. And then I say, say something, say it clearly so that we can understand you, say it loud enough so we can hear you and say it with confidence. At that point, it won't really matter that you just told us about getting a haircut as you segue into the next song, slide or topic. And I wanna say one other thing like that. The audience doesn't care. If you're confident in what you say, then I could, I mean, literally tonight I'm going to be on stage. I could talk, you know, I talked to my fellow bandmate. I can literally say, you know, again, give the commercial. And then I could turn to him and I say, hey, you know what? I got a new hat the other day. What do you think? You think this hat looks good? I think it looks great. I hope you look, think it looks great too. Play. Nobody cares. I mean, they, they care, but they're not going to be like, well, what is he talking about his hat? That has nothing to do with anything. The point is, is that I'm confident and what I'm saying, and I'm just moving the show along, mm -hmm. right? Move the show along, be in control of the show. Yeah. So, yeah. It's like it, when you construct, when you write a movie, a script for a film, and you see the final edit, the final script, every piece of dialogue, the purpose of, it has a, has a purpose. Mm -hmm. Like you said, move the show along. Dialogue within, whether it's a sitcom, whether it's a film, its purpose is to get you to from point A to point B to C to D all the way to the end. And I think where a lot of people don't think ahead is they, they practice the songs, they think about the songs, they don't think about between the songs, the time between the songs and what to say, how to say it, exactly what you said with the, the confidence of and conviction of whatever it is. But that's where I think the whole with a lot of, especially in the artists is, and it's also a confidence thing. I can sing because I know the words, now that I'm not singing to words that I have memorized, now I actually have to extemporaneously say something. That's where they lose their confidence because I don't think they planned out in advance what they're going to say. Therefore, they don't know what to say and they lose that confidence. It becomes this sort of never-ending cycle of just, you're just boring me because you're just stupid up there. You know what I'm saying? You, you speak in front of people a lot, don't you? Yes. I can tell. You, you, you project, your words are right. clear. 
you, 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 your body is projecting your hands, your movement, your eyes, your face. That's all that that's projecting right there. I, I know you say that, that people are only going to hear, hear this, and not see it, but that that's a good thing. I can tell that you speak in front of people because you're projecting. You could say the same thing, but be like, Okay, the thing, and, and you're mumbling, like, what is he saying? I don't know. And but you're saying the same thing. So the content is the same. It's just the projection. It, look, everything you just said was spot on, but it could be totally wrong. But I'd still go, yeah, you said it like that. That's awesome. That's, I agree. That's cool. Yeah. 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 So, so to me, one of the lessons there is think about that time too and practice it and practice the presentation of those words, I think. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, just to, to wrap that up, for those people that maybe not too creative to think in the moment, write it down, write your script, yeah. write your commercial, merch table, thank you to the venue, uh, here's the band, mm -hmm. we're excited to be in this city, write your commercial there, um, uh, write your little setup for each song. I wrote this song when I was driving down the road in Denver, Colorado, and I looked over in the mountain and the sunlight, it hit me. And I can't wait to present you whatever until you start to find some confidence of being creative on stage and learn how to do that. The other thing is, I think there's they feel a pressure, uh, a subconscious pressure about the time to talk, because when you think about it, they have the creativity to put this song together, the chords, the lyrics, the melody, the arrangement. Yet when it came to talking, they did not put the same creativity into that. Look at Springsteen and Springsteen's entire career when he performs live. He has stories and the stories become part of the song. The stories are made up, mm -hmm. but, but they completely add to the show and add to the entire experience of that show. So to me, this whole discussion right here is the best part of the whole podcast that we're doing, because if you can really nail that part as a performer, you really can do better. It, and it, tie, it ties into the first hook we talked about it. The artist always thinks it's about them. The artist thinks that the, 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 the listener is judging the guitar riff or the, the, the chord arrangement or the, the, is the note in tune or not. No, they are wanting an experience. And how do you have an experience? You develop a relationship. And how do you develop a relationship is that you talk, you communicate mm -hmm. with each other, right? And so if you completely disregard your, your banter on stage, then in essence, what you're saying is, is just listen to my song, but I don't want to have a relationship with you in this moment. I want you to just like my song, right? Yeah. And so you have to find a way to make it not about yourself, but about the listener, about as a, as a uh, joining together. You know, I, I say in the book, the old uh, stage adage, uh, the, the goal, you know, the thing, you pull, man, I pulled the rug out from underneath them, which means we really got them, right? But as I learned, uh, before you can pull the rug out from underneath the audience, you first have to get them to stand on that. Right? It's true. So true. that and goes I along you guys forever. I hope we keep going. It's fun to me. That, yeah. that goes along with uh, never play to the musicians in the audience. There you go. You know, what you're saying that about court and so on. And that's tough, baby. That's a hard one, man. Yeah. The minute you see that guy that you know is, is can play in the audience, oh man. Yeah, can't help it to think about them, but that's a good one. I like that. Yeah, we have about three minutes left. So, okay. all right, good. Uh, one question I have for you since you did play moving, do you play moving out on Broadway in New York City, or you, was that yeah. where you did? That's where I started. I wasn't uh, a regular there, but um, 
the tour, I was, I was part of the first national tour, the first cast of the first national tour. So the first national tour hadn't launched yet. So when they were, when they were doing my prep shows and my first few shows, I played on, on Broadway. Yes. Okay. And you were the Billy Joel character in that, correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, how many times would you say you performed moving out in your career? Uh, well, I'm not going to do the math quickly, but I was, I did uh, two years, uh, anywhere from three to five shows as the piano man a week. Okay. Mm -hmm. So two years, you said? 150. It's around 300 so much. Okay. So more 450. Okay. Better math than I. What would you say? And can you even do this? And I'm sure you maybe can. Your maybe top five favorite Billy Joel songs are. Okay. My, this wasn't in the show, but it just ultimately my favorite is uh, You May Be Right. Love that tune. Anytime that comes on, I roll with it. Uh, scenes from Italian Restaurant, mm -hmm. Summer Highland Falls. Those two were in the show. Honesty. Mm. Okay, that, that's four, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, now they just, I don't know. Because <laughs> now, now you're going to make me think. I don't know. Just the way you are. I love that. We'll say that. That's my mother's favorite song. So I'll say it in honor of mom. Hi, mom. <laughs> Hello. Hello, Mrs. Wilson. So great. Okay. Dr. Stabon, any final words? Because then we can wrap it up. No, I think this has been great. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of good tidbits for any musician listening to this. Thank you. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, others might be able to draw from the analogy of music and apply it to their own life too. All right. Now, Matt, I mean, Dave, does Matt know we have a book out, our seventh edition? Of managing your band? No, I'm sure it wasn't. Just came out July 30th, our seventh edition. I need, managing I need, your a, band. I need to find a way to get a copy of that. I want to see it. Yeah, we'll try to uh, send you a PDF right now anyway. Please, yes, please. Excellent, yeah. okay. Right. And everybody should know that Matt's book, Matt Wilson, is Hooks, colon, Lessons on Performance, Business, and Life from a Working Musician. So, Matt Wilson, thank you very much for you. This was excellent. I loved it. I hope we can do it again sometime soon. All right. We'll do this every week. Every Friday, we'll do this. Please, call me. <laughs> Great. Matt Wilson, thank Oh, by the way, so at the end of every show, we don't say goodbye. You don't want to know what we say, Matt? What? Say, and you can say it along with me if you'd like. Adios! What? I, you cut out. What? I, I said, uh, it's hard because it's Zoom. I said adios, but I screamed it. Adios! You want to do it on three? Yeah. One, two, three. Adios! adios! There we go. you in cause it hurts like hell